Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. Want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome everyone tonight for a special edition of the Determined Truth Podcast. What we're doing tonight, and my uh, co-host Vinny Angelo is not going to be with us tonight, but I have a whole group of people with me. Um, they're on Zoom, so you might not see them, but I certainly do. Uh, we've been in a four-week study of the book of Ezekiel, and we want to kind of let you into that study tonight. And what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and kind of summarize and, and bring the a climax, our study of the book of Ezekiel, and bring everybody up to speak, because I know not everybody that's even in, in the Zoom study tonight has been with us the whole time. So we're going to review all that, and then we're going to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, this Gog and Magog thing, what's going on there. And then we'll overview chapters 40 through 48, the last nine chapters in Ezekiel's temple. And then if time permits, in this particular podcast, we will go ahead and look at Ezekiel in the New Testament. If that, If it doesn't permit, then what we'll do is uh, we'll make a separate podcast episode out of that. So we'll see how it goes. But tonight, and again, my guests that are with me uh, live are welcome to ask questions and interject uh, anything that they want. So the book of Ezekiel has been this phenomenal study. The Ezekiel kind of bridges the gap. For those that have been with us, we've been doing Isaiah and Daniel. And Ezekiel is more along the Daniel line. He's a captive in Babylon with Daniel, but he kind of a little bit earlier than Daniel in, in, in a few ways. The Israelites in the book of Ezekiel are taken into captivity in Babylon. This is the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ezekiel now is reminding them that, hey, listen, uh, don't, don't be afraid because actually God is with us. And if you remember chapter 11 in the book of Ezekiel, we had uh, this reference that actually God has actually gone into exile with us. Ezekiel 11, I'm going to start in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel 11, verse 16. Therefore, says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them for a little while in the countries where they had gone. So God went with them. He left Jerusalem also. Uh, ultimately, Jerusalem gets destroyed. Ezekiel gets message of that while he's in Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem's been destroyed. And now the people of Israel are thinking, or the people of Judah, essentially the southern tribes, are thinking, it's hopeless. We, we thought there was hope, but if Jerusalem's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, all is lost. And so now we get this wonderful message that we see in the end of Isaiah and throughout much of the, many of the prophets of, no, God has not forgotten you. In fact, he's going to bring about this great restoration, and the restoration is going to be better than you ever expected, better than you imagined, uh, better than you thought. In fact, it's going to be this, and Isaiah and Ezekiel, they use this language of new creation. God's going to do this new creation thing. And so we noted, if those of you that were with us, how, how, many, how often Genesis language appears in the book of Ezekiel, because this new creation is going to be a restoration of the Garden of Eden. And so uh, if you see the, the, the red letters, look at the Genesis parallels, the theme of creation, uncreation, and then recreation. We saw in chapter one of the, of the book of Ezekiel, the, the four living creatures, and it's actually the same language. In Genesis 1, 24 and 20, I, I know you guys don't have these notes. That's why I'm sharing this with you. If you want to take notes and copy of this down, you're welcome to do so. So Ezekiel uh, 1, 5 through 10, the four living creatures. In the book of Genesis, it says God created the living creatures. And there's that same verbiage of living creatures and the four living creatures. We have the wind hovering over the waters at creation. And the wind is hovering over uh, and the spirit moving in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, verse 4, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 
uh, Ezekiel refers to this expanse because remember God appears in this chariot up in this expanse of the sky. And of course, that's the same language of the expanse of the sky. Um, uh, Ezekiel is, is called the son of man, right? That's his favorite title for himself. We talked about how Jesus uses the title son of man because, well, they think I'm just talking about myself as a prophet. They don't know that I mean son of man as the book of Daniel means son of man. And the title son of man, but son of man actually literally means the son of Adam. And so the, there's this relationship between them. We see a, a rainbow around the throne in Ezekiel 128 that reminds us of the, the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9. And then, of course, Ezekiel 3.18, you shall surely die, which is the same language of Genesis 2, verse 17. Uh, and then the words like multiply, increase, be fruitful, they appear in Ezekiel 36, 10 and 11, Ezekiel 36, 29, Ezekiel 36, 30, Ezekiel 37, 26. And if you're listening on a podcast, just kind of pause and write those verses down and go back. But multiply, increase, and be fruitful, all Genesis language. And then, of course, we saw last week, if you were with us, the reference to the fact that this new creation is going to be like the Garden of Eden. And so Eden, in fact, was explicitly mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse uh, 36. So there's this consistent references to Eden. All right, now we're going to bring it to the Gospel of John in a little bit, but the next thing to note about the fulfillment in the book of Ezekiel is that this reference that, that we mentioned last week, that I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to put a new spirit within you, and that's Ezekiel 36. So Ezekiel 36, we looked at it last week without going too far into it. Verse 26, I will sprinkle clean water, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all the filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So here's this, this newness of the spirit walking and dwelling within us. And, and the key theme of that that I want to discuss a little bit tonight for us also is that actually is temple language. It's the language of God dwelling in his temple among his people. And one of the key things that we need to recognize, and this will bring us into the New Testament, whether we get there tonight or whether we get there in a future study, is that God has always been concerned about the nations. It's always been about the nations. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And as a result, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. You saw, we saw that in our Isaiah study. Remember Isaiah 19? There'll be, there'll be a highway from Babylon to Egypt uh, and from Assyria to Egypt. And, and Israel will be third. We're like, what? what you, exactly, because God has this tremendous concern for the nations. And in the book of Ezekiel, that's the whole idea that, <clears throat> excuse me, God's going to dwell among his people. And this is fulfillment is he's going to spread that presence, that temple presence to, to the nations. Throughout the book of Ezekiel, we'll see, I will be their God and they'll be my people and they will know and they will walk with me. This language that we've pointed out a few times, but chapter 14, verse 11, they'll be my people and I'll be their God. Chapter 34, verse 24, I'll be their God. 36, 28 that we looked at last week. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. And again, if you need me to repeat these, let me know. Uh, 36, 28, 37, 20, 23. They'll be my people and I will be their God. And we, what we want to do now is let's pick it up there. We kind of we threw the last part of Ezekiel 37 into our study last week. So let's, let's finish with Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. And if somebody wants to read it, go ahead so I can get a drink of water. Uh, can we go ahead? Thank you, please. Uh, David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. 
Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations will also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, for my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So this is the kind of the climax then of, of 36 and 37 are, hey, it's going to be okay. This is the great restoration that we promised. I'm going to go ahead and do it myself. The shepherds of Israel that we looked at a few weeks ago, they failed you, but I'll be your good shepherd. And of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. We see all that. And, here's, and here it is. I'm going to set my king, uh, my servant David over them. And they're going to have one shepherd and they're going to walk in my ordinances, right? Verse 26, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant. And, and I will multiply them. There's Genesis language. Right? I'll multiply them. And look at the middle of verse 26. I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This is the temple language. The, the temple of God is actually going to be in their midst. But we know this is different than the temple of God in the Old Testament time, you know, the temple of Solomon's temple. Remember, remember that temple has been destroyed by now, right? Because that temple, it might have been in, the midst, in their midst, but only one person, and only once a year that one person, actually walked into God's temple presence. And this seems to be saying, I'm going to walk with them, and I'm, I'm going to be in your... So we're expecting something grander than what we saw in the Old Testament. So uh, my dwelling place will be with them, verse 27. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And I know I may have put this on your notes, on your outline, but that's Leviticus 26, 12 and 13. And Ezekiel 37, 27. So, and what we have in, Eze in Leviticus 26 is the promise of, okay, guys, I know I kicked you out of the garden, but I'm going to restore that garden presence because it's, it's Eden language. The Eden language is I will walk with you. The word for walk in Leviticus 26 is the same word as used in Genesis 3, 8, that God walked in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve. And so Leviticus says, yeah, God's going to do this again. And now Ezekiel picks it up and says, yep, that's right. In this new creation sense, God's going to restore that garden presence that Adam and Eve enjoyed where they walked in the midst of God's presence. He's going to do that in this, this restoration. So now if we stop here and we have every right to believe, and we'll see more so in chapter 37 and chapter 38 and 39, that this is a restoration of the Jewish people, right? We looked last week at the, the Valley of Dry Bones and the two sticks are the house of Ephraim and the house of Judah. We're expecting a restoration of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but God's going to do something grander than what he did before, and it will be Eden-like. Fine, no problem. I mean, that's kind of where, where we would be left at. All right, now, chapters 40 through 48 are going to be nine chapters about Ezekiel's restored temple. So remember, the temple has been destroyed by the time Ezekiel writes this. It has not been rebuilt yet. It gets rebuilt in 516. So it was destroyed in 586. Gets rebuilt in 516. And so Ezekiel's like, yeah, it's going to be restored. And he describes over nine chapters, 40 through 48, this restored temple. And as a side note, if you just go on Google or go on Amazon.com and you type in Ezekiel's restored temple or the last day's temple, you're going to get all kinds of wacky stuff about end times. I'm sorry, I'll call it wacky as I think it is. 
uh, about the last day's temple and how the Jews are going to rebuild this temple in Jerusalem and, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and the reality is, no, uh, that's not what's happening. That's not what's going on. And we'll, we're going to see why I think it's no, that's not, that's not what's happening. Now, the question though becomes, well, wait a minute, what are chapters 38 and 39 doing in the middle of all this? Because if 36 and 37 are describing the great restoration, it's going to be this. If this is this great restoration, and then chapters 40 through 48 describe the new temple, then what are 38 and 39 doing in the middle of it? Well, let's begin by reading Ezekiel 38, a couple of verses into it. Ezekiel 38, and then I'm going to stop, and we'll talk about it a little bit, and kind of chew on this passage for a few minutes, and then we'll move to chapter 40 through 48, and then we'll get, get, go to the New Testament. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man. Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. Now, Magog literally means the land of Gog. The Ma is actually an Akkadian prefix, which means land of. So a literal translation would be like, uh, uh, set your face toward Gog of the land of the land of Gog. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God. Now, one of the things I put in your notes is, the phrase, thus says the Lord God, occurs seven times in these chapters, yeah. right? So it's in chapter 38, verse 3, chapter 38, verse 10, chapter 38, verse 14, 38, verse 17 is the fourth one, 39, verse 1 is the fifth time, thus says the Lord God, 39, verse 17, thus says the Lord God. And your translation might not translate it this way. So if you're looking in an NIV, you're like, wait a minute, it didn't have it. Trust me, it's there in the Hebrew. And then the, the seventh one is 39, verse 25. Thus says the Lord God. So there you go. Seven times. When an author does that, it's usually an indication that, yeah, we've got a whole one entity here. We should look at these two chapters as though they're one thing. Of course, two chapters is not a big deal. The, the chapter break's not a problem but we should segregate 38 and 39 and separate them a little bit because the authors say, hey, look, there's seven times this occurs in, the, in this little section. Yep, it makes one section. 42, 48 clearly begins this new part of the temple. 37 is over with. Okay, we got this one unit there. So there we go. We got something going on. So, so what's happening in these two chapters? Well, what's happening in these two chapters is, oh, guess what? I forgot to tell you something. You know how I'm going to restore this thing and it's going to be great. My spirit's going to be in you. I'm going to change your heart from a heart of flesh to a heart, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new spirit and I'm going to dwell with like that's all that all sounds great. Right. And then there's going to be like this fulfilled temple thing. It's all, oh, by the way, the devil's still going to do his stuff. What 38 and 39 do is they kind of fill in the gap of, oh, guess what? Um, the enemy hasn't been silenced yet, and there's going to be opposition to the work of God in this kingdom, and that opposition is going to be great, and it's going to have to be something that you're going to have to deal with because we're going to have to overcome. Right, now, let me stop there and note this, and then I'll, I'll look at 38 and 39 in a little bit more detail. Very commonly in the last 200 years or so, 1800s to, to, to the current day, the thought is, oh, Gog refers to the Russians Meshach is Moscow, after all. Can't mean that, by the way, because the word Moscow didn't exist until the 900s. So there's no way Ezekiel 1500, 1600 years earlier could have made reference to Moscow when it didn't exist. That's not the way prophecy works. You're like, of course, you can have an insight in the future. That's not the way it works. Prophets were speaking to the people of their day in the language of their day. Gog comes from Genesis 10. 
the table of the nations in Genesis 10, I think it's verse two, that's where Gog comes from. So there's your, there's your first indication that we're actually looking backwards. Remember, the prophets often look backwards at the, the exodus out of Egypt and Genesis language, and he's looking backwards. And what you have actually is this table of nations, and we'll note that the nations that are described here as we go on, and I haven't read the verses yet, actually come from north, south, east, and west. So if we think, right, and right now that's all we have, that God's going to restore Israel to the land of Israel, or the Jewish people to the land of Israel, he's going to be rebuilt his temple in the land of Israel, Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it, then the nations around it, north, south, east, and west, put over on the, over in the west, Assyria up in the north, Ethiopia in the south, they're all going to bring this invasion against God's people and against, against his, it says my people, I think it's in chapter 38, verse 16, not make this easy. It's going to be a struggle for, for God's people. But, oh, guess what? God's going to rescue you from Gog and Magog or Gog and, you know, and Meshach and Tabul and, and all. And, and God, can, God can conquer these enemy nations. You have nothing to worry about. And if God can conquer the enemy nations, then you're, you're going to be fine. So uh, does that make sense a little bit? All right, let me kind of work through this, these two chapters a little bit. Thus says the Lord, seven times already, gives us an indication. If we look at it carefully, and I, I brought my Hebrew out a little bit, then I'm like, I'm not going to take the time to do it. I, I apologize. There actually are seven nations listed. They come from the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And of course, four is a common number in prophetic or apocalyptic literature for the totality of all, all the earth, the four directions, uh, the four corners of the earth. This is, this is comprising all the nations of the world. So Gog is actually just the epitome, the, the embodiment of all the kingdoms of the world that oppose the people of God. In other words, Gog is like the archetypal typal enemy of, uh, against God and against the work of God. So I know I'm going to bring this kingdom, I promised you in 36 and 37, but I want you to know that it's actually not going to be as easy as you might think. Now, notice also, so let me kind of point out the, the, the uh, symbolism that's in the passage, because the symbolism is going to be significant, kind of, kind of help us know that. We have the seven references to, to God. We have, if you turn to verse 30, chapter 39, this is describing the, ju the judgment against God. He's, he's going to be destroyed. Uh, the, chapter 39, verse 1, you, son of man, prophesy against God and say, thus says the Lord, I'm against you. And so God's going to, uh, verse 3, I'm going to strike your bow from your left hand and dash your arrows from, the, uh, from your right hand. You shall fall in the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops. So God's going to defeat this enemy of God's against God's people. Verse four, I'm going to give you, a, middle of verse four, I'm going to give you food uh, as food to every predatory bird and, and beast of the field, and, and you'll fall in the open field, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So then we skip down to verse nine. Those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with weapons and burn them, both the shields and the bucklers, bows and the arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years, they'll make fires of them. So the, the weaponry of Gog is going to burn for seven years. Now then we'll skip down to verse 12. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Right? End of verse 14. At the end of seven months, they'll make a stench. Right? So we see references to seven nations opposing God's people. Seven years, the fire is going to burn. Seven years or seven months, they're going to be buried. And, all, and we get, oh, guess what? We, get, we know what's going on. This is symbolic language about the enemies of God's people fighting against God's armies and, and against, uh, against God. 
and God's going to destroy them and God's going to defeat them. And if God can defeat Gog and all the enemies that are, that are contained in Gog, then surely God can, can protect you. So God's going to defeat your enemies. Therefore, God's on your side. Don't worry. And folks, I would absolutely tell you, this is the message of the New Testament. You know, before we started the recording here for the podcast, we, we, we were praying for the people of Afghanistan. And I'm going to let you on an inside secret here. It frustrates me a little bit when I, maybe more than a little bit, but when I hear these prophecy experts or these TV preachers or whoever it might be go, you know, the end times are coming. Or they're, they're coming. You know, it's going to be soon. You know, they're going to take away our liberties and we're going to be persecuted. And I'm like, how American uh, are you? I mean, this is such an American, the whole world revolves around us uh, as a, since persecution hasn't come to America, it hasn't come to the church yet. And because it hasn't come to the church yet, the end times haven't started. Folks, they were persecuted in Acts chapter 2. They were persecuted in Acts 4, in Acts 5, in Acts 7. Stephen is stoned to death. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter, James is killed. Peter's, Peter's almost, you know, Paul's threatened. Paul's killed after the book of Acts ends. You know, when the book of Acts ends, persecution against the church didn't end. Paul's killed. Peter's crucified. Oh, guess what? 30 years later, John's thrown in prison. Guess what? You have men and women of of God who have been persecuted for 1900 years. What do you mean the end times have are coming? They've they've been here for 1900 years. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if one of the body, members of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Folks, we are under persecution now. It's been happening for 1900 years. And it's only when we think of like the United States and the American church that comprises the totality of Christendom that we could ever get away with saying, I think the end times are, are, are they're, they're, they're coming. They're, 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 they're going to be here soon. Uh, the, you know, any day now, folks, they've been around for a long time. And, and our job is not to sit back and wait for it to come here. Our job is to go, Hey, you know what? The people in Afghanistan, this is not right. And we should be praying for them. We should be advocating for them, you know, and I don't know what advocacy looks like. I don't know how we can support them more than what we're doing, but we should be bringing aid to Haiti and the earthquake victims there and the churches there and supporting them, uh, helping the Christians in China that are being persecuted. And, and we should be speaking out for everyone and for justice as well. But the, the notion that, oh, well, Gog and Magog refers to this end times battle when God's people have to suffer. No, it refers to the, yeah, it refers to an end times battle. And yes, it refers to when God's people suffer, but no, it's not something future. It's something present. And it has been present for 1900 years. So in fact, let's go to Revelation 20 for just a quick peek in the, the book of Revelation. And then we'll go back and take any of your comments and questions before we go to Revelation 40 through 48. Revelation chapter 20. And uh, there, I do have a podcast on Revelation 20. I have a podcast on every chapter of the book of Revelation. Each of those podcasts are about eight, eight minutes to 25 minutes or so long. So one, one kind of chunk of the book of Revelation at a time is about 20 or so podcasts on there. If you, if you want to look that up and kind of get some more information on that. Um, but here we go. Re Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up upon the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the, of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So it's not much of a war, by the way. Revelation doesn't have a war in it. 
that that's as much as you're ever going to get as far as the war. That, that's your best description of a war in the book of Revelation. Yeah, fire came down from heaven, devoured them, it's over. But notice that Gog and Magog, and the only biblical reference to Gog and Magog is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So it has to be quoting Ezekiel here. Gog, of course, is in the table of nations in Genesis 10, but Magog is not. And of course, note where Gog and Magog are referred to as coming from the four corners of the earth. Exactly. Gog is not Russia or some particular nation. Gog is all the nations, north, south, east, and west, surrounding Jerusalem. And note here in Revelation, it says, they're surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. I'm not sure what your translation might say there, but the camp, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Of course, the beloved city is, it's Jerusalem, if you want to call it that, but we're going to have to define Jerusalem here. here. What happens in Revelation 20 then is, it's describing this battle that, that occurs by the nations of the world against the people of God. And the answer is, it's been happening since the beginning of the, of the church. And you could even argue it's happening before the beginning of the church, but certainly it goes back to the book of um, Acts and, and it begins there. Does that make sense? Yeah, let me stop for any questions here, any, any comments there? I have a question. Please. Where, where, so uh, Gog and Magog and people say that that's Russia and you can even Google it and it'll say it's Russia. Yeah, that's and right, been that's right, yeah saying it's Russia since I was a kid. Where does that come? Where did that come from? Yeah, it comes actually from a really preeminent Hebrew scholar. So believe it or not, a, a prominent Hebrew scholar named Gassinius, 1832, I think it was. And he is one of the prolific Old Testament scholars in the, in the world or at the time and even today. And he said that Meshach is probably a derivative or, or Moscow is a derivative of Meshach. Well, he kind of got shot down after he published this. It was in a footnote of, of his translation of Eze his copy of the book of Ezekiel, his Hebrew text, the book of Ezekiel, uh, 38 and 39. He got shot down in the Hebrew scholars, and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. Moscow is not from the ninth century. It can't possibly mean that. Uh, and so he took it out of later editions. And like one edition had this a footnote, and then he took it out of later editions. However, C.I. Schofield, it was still there when he decided to have his Bible, if you've heard of the Schofield Bible in 1901. And Schofield is the father of modern day, what we call dispensationalism and end time stuff. He kind of took all that stuff that was in the world of his day and he made it popular because he made a Bible with footnotes. So any English speaking reader can have the Schofield reference Bible in 1901 and had all these footnotes. And Schofield was like, yep, this is what's going to happen. It's seven-year tribulation, rapture, all that stuff kind of begins really with him. It begins with him in the sense it's popularized by him. And that's how it's stuck in the English-speaking world. So Gustinius is like, no, actually, I don't think this is legit anymore. But, but Schofield picked it up, and that's kind of where, where, it's, where, where it took off from there. But there's no way it could mean that because Ezekiel doesn't mean this. And Ezekiel is not describing an invasion simply from the north. It comes from the north, that's, and that is where, Mo where Russia is. Moscow, by the way, is due north of Jerusalem. The, the invasion of Gog and Magog is from all the nations of the world and from all the corners of, uh, corners of the earth. So, And again, the reason why I showed this, the numeric symbolism of seven, seven nations and seven years and seven months and seven times thus says the Lord, is this, he, he's, he's framing this in apocalyptic language that's automatically telling you this is not meant to be taken literally. This is meant to be globalized and looked at in, the, in this larger picture. And if we have time, 
we're going to watch the book of Revelation pick up on Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's, it's just going to the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, five chapters of Revelation, uh, well, maybe even six, if you start in 17, all are building on Ezekiel 37 through 48 is actually an outline of Revelation 17 through 22. So John is not only using Ezekiel and the language of Ezekiel, he's kind of telling a story as Ezekiel 37 kind of play out. So it's clearly that the way we are to understand Ezekiel is through the lens of John and not just with Ezekiel all by itself. So, wow, could we be in the end of the end times? Mm-hmm. Mm. Sure. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Uh, could we be in the end of the end times uh, is the question. Yeah, sure. But I wouldn't go, oh, because of what we see in the United Nations or because of what we see in Russia or because of what we see here. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, the reason why we could be at the end, the end of the end times is because we don't know when the end is. Jesus himself said, I don't know when that day or hour is going to come. The idea that, oh, we have 40 years from 1948. Well, that didn't work out. Okay, let's go 70 years from 1948. That didn't work out. No, we don't have any markers. They're going to give us these textual clues. And I know some of you guys are familiar, you know, my book, Understanding the New Testament in the End Times. I discussed this, that the markers in the, in the biblical text as to when Christ is going to return is the persecution of the church, the faithful witness of the church. It's nothing to do with signs in the nations, earthquakes, never, that stuff's not in there. And all right, let's move on. Chapters 40 through 48 and the book of Ezekiel, now nine chapters on uh, this, this end times temple. And those of you that were with us last week, of course, might already re recall that the gospel of John is going to pick up on this theme of the temple. And he's going to, without question, tell us Jesus is the fulfillment of these nine chapters. We don't have to worry about this. Oh, there's going to be an end times temple. I was like, uh, no, that was Jesus. And anybody who says there's going to be a temple built in the city of Jerusalem is radically misunderstanding and minimizing the person and work of Jesus. So, right, so here's what we got. Ezekiel chapter 40 now. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. Somebody want to read verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel 40, verses 1 and 2. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, in the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So, the, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention... Uh, one or two verses in Ezekiel 38 that I was going to mention. It says, verse uh, 16, referring to God, verse 14 says, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God. So he's speaking to Gog, and he says in verse uh, 16, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land. So this is the description of Gog and Magog then is a battle against God's people, and in God's land. Now, of course, I would point out, we're going to have to define God's people and we have to define God's land. If all we have is Ezekiel right now, it's the Jewish people and it's Jerusalem and it's the land of Israel. But we got to go further to figure out what that is. All right, now Ezekiel then gets this vision in chapter 40. And the first thing to note is he's taken on a high mountain, right? And so keep that in mind, mark that down. Verse, middle of verse two, a very high mountain. And he saw a city. 
Okay, this is exact. I'll give, I'll give you the reference now, and if we have time, we'll look at it later. Revelation 21, 9 and 10. John is taken to a high mountain, and he's shown the holy city, the New Jerusalem. No question about it, John. Revelation 21, 9 and 10, parallel Ezekiel 40, uh, verses 1 and 2. So he's going to see a city, but he actually doesn't see a city. In fact, Ezekiel never describes a city. And by the way, John never describes a city either. In both cases, in Revelation and in Ezekiel, they don't describe a city, they describe a temple. And the idea is actually that the temple takes up the entire city. So in Ezekiel's case, the entire city of Jerusalem, the temple actually encompasses the entire city, the whole city of Jerusalem has become a temple. In John's case, in the book of Revelation, the entire city has become a temple, but the entire city actually fills the whole earth. Because John gives the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, and it was the size of the Roman world, right? 1,260 stadia, which probably was John's way of saying it fills the whole earth in the, in the new creation sense. That's actually the way, the way to go. All right, so then John goes on to describe. Uh, and of course, you know, my Bible has headings like uh, chapter 40, verse 5. The heading says measurements relating to the temple. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought he was going to see a city. It's like, yeah, exactly. He doesn't see a city. He sees a temple. Now, by the way, the notion that the temple of Ezekiel is some end times temple doesn't make any sense from a Christian standpoint from, from, and through the New Testament for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is that there are going to be sacrifices in the temple. But we know Jesus put away with sacrifices. The book of Daniel even told us that it was going to happen. And of course, the book of Hebrews is really clear. He was sacrificed once and for all. And Hebrews is like, look, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins. It doesn't work. That's Hebrews 10. Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And so Hebrews 9, like Jesus is the sacrifice, that's it. So to have the idea that there's going to be an end times temple where there's sacrifices is almost, it's almost blasphemous. I'm not going to say it actually is blasphemous, but it's like, yeah, I think in the New Testament, we are the sacrifices, right? We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. We might remember that sacrifice when we take communion, but we're not going to have a sacrificial system being reinstated. That. Another reason why this temple can't be rebuilt is because we actually don't have enough descriptions. You, you can't take the descriptions of this temple in Ezekiel 42, 48, and actually rebuild a temple because he doesn't measure everything enough. We don't know, well, how big is this? I don't know. It didn't tell me. So it, it's not actually possible. Now, the next thing to note is we'll skip down to Ezekiel chapter 43. What happens is 42, 42 kind of describe the space that's, that's there. And then Ezekiel 43 through 46 describes what fills the space. And the reason why that's relevant is because that's what happens in the book of Genesis. Genesis days numbers one, two, and three are the space, right? The sea, the land, and the sky are created. And then Genesis days four, five, and six, God fills the space. The sun, the moon, and the stars fill the sky. Day five, the, the sea animals fill the, the sea. Day six, the land animals fill the land. It's the same kind of uh, language or, or structural uh, way of putting together uh, a passage or, or a description. Now, Ezekiel 43 now, uh, verse 1, says, He led me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, and behold, look at this, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Now, anybody know, what is east of Jerusalem? If you're an Israelite reading this at the time Ezekiel wrote, unmute yourself so you can answer. Or, what is it? Babylon. Or exactly. Sin. It's Babylon. 
We learned earlier in the book of Ezekiel that God left Jerusalem also, and he took up residence in Babylon. And he was with the Israelites in Babylon. And now the glory, and the word for glory, that is that Shekinah glory, that, that glory of God that dwelt in the temple itself is going to come back from the east. And look what it says. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And by the way, that's the exact language used in the book of Revelation. God's voice sounds like the voice of many waters. Uh, Revelation 14, I think it is verse maybe two or three. And the earth was shown with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision when I saw by the river Shabar, which remember that's in Babylon. Uh, verse four, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing the east. And of course, the house of the temple. And the spirit lifted me up and he brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. The temple is full of the Lord's, and it goes on to describe, you know, this is where I, verse seven, it says, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Okay, so we're expecting then, if we look at Ezekiel carefully now, all right, this is an end times temple that actually fills the whole city up and it comprises the entirety of the city and the glory of God's gonna dwell there. This is, this is gonna be something awesome. Now, let's skip down to chapter 47. For a second here. Ezekiel chapter 47 now, and watch what happens. Verse one, he brought me back to the door of the house. Behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. Confirmation that it's a temple, because God's temple always faces the east. In fact, all temples in the ancient world face east. The house, this house faces to the east. It's a, it's a temple, no doubt about it. And in verse two, he brought me out by the way of the north gate and he led me around on the outside, outside of the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. Okay, so there's water coming out from the threshold, apparently from the throne itself, but it's only a trickle. Now, verse three, when the man went out with a line in his hand, and, and by the way, a measuring line is something that a prophet uses to measure something. And it's a way of signifying that God's divinely protecting whatever's being measured. So Zechariah chapter one, Zechariah has a measure, or an angel has a measuring line and he measures Jerusalem. And it's like, the city's not big enough. It needs to be expanded. And in Revelation chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 11, John is giving a measuring rod because at the end, the last verse of Revelation 10, John's told to go prophesy. And he says, he has a measuring rod, go measure the altar in the temple. John's doing a prophetic act of measuring something and it symbolizes or signifies the divine protection of whatever's being measured. So he's measuring the water. And note what happens in verse three. He measured the water a thousand cubits and he led me out to the water, water reaching the ankles. Verse four, he measured a thousand and led me out to the water, water reaching the knees. This water is getting deeper. Okay, now let's stop for a second. That's not possible. The only way water can get deeper or river can get deeper is if there's tributaries being added to it. But this water comes from the throne. And any water outside that throne is unholy water. And this water is holy and we're going to see that it's holy. So this isn't literal water literally coming from a temple. It, it, it's a symbolic. There's something significant going on. And it's this water of purification. And of course, you might know if, if you're with us in the study, 
John 13, he washed the disciples' feet. John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. John 3, Nicodemus must be born from water and blood. John 4, the woman at the well. I would have given you living water and you would never thirst again. This is the water we're talking about. It's water reaching the knees. Verse 5, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I couldn't even swim. For the water had risen, water enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to, man, he said to me, verse 6, son of man, do you see this? And he brought me to the back to the bank of the river. So the water's now a river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, these waters, they go out toward the eastern region. That was the map I was going to show you earlier. So let me uh, bring up another map here. This is the city of Jerusalem. Here's the temple facing to the east. Okay, so this is east. This is the Mount of Olives. And this map actually has the height. Mount of Olives is 2,684 feet. And Jerusalem, you're going to see the highest number you're going to see is 2,500, 2,600 feet east of Jerusalem. The high, Jerusalem is actually short. Uh, the, the mount that Jerusalem is on, Mount Moriah, many believe it's, it's Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered up Isaac, is actually a little bit lower than the Mount of Olives. If you're looking to the east from Jerusalem, and note down here, you see the measurements, uh, 2,300 feet. It goes down from the Mount of Olives and then back up to the Temple Mount. And so when you're looking on the mount from, the, um, from Jerusalem, and you're looking to the east, what you see is the Mount of Olives. And that's what's being described here. The, this water's flowing to the east. And it's going to go up and over the Mount of Olives. Now, if you go from the Mount of Olives, what you're going to see here, here's Jerusalem. And see Bethany on this map here? Bethany is just on the, on the, just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. So this is the Mount of Olives here. And if you go from here, you're going to go straight downhill. You're going to go, in fact, not only from 2,600 feet, you're going to go to about 17 to 1,800 feet below sea level meaning you're going to go down about 4,000 some odd feet to the Dead Sea Valley, and there's the Dead Sea. So the, the sea to the east is the Dead Sea. The bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region. They go down to the Arabah. And your, your translation might say, actually say desert, because Arabah is just the Hebrew word for desert. They go out to the desert. It's the Dead Sea Valley and the, and the, the, the desert where Jericho is. And it says, they go out to the Dead Sea being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea become fresh. The Dead Sea becomes fresh. It will come about that every living creature that swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there'll be very many fish for these waters, for these waters go there and others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come from the fishermen will stand in it beside it from Engedi to Englaim. And that, those are, by the way, on the shore of the Dead Sea. Or at the time of Jesus, they were on the shore of the Dead Sea. Or at the time of Ezekiel, they were. If you go there today, they're not on the shore any longer because the sea's evaporating. And that's another ecological issue, by the way. All right, so they're going to be fishermen there. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, and the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. Uh, the, like the fish, of, very many, but its swamps and marshes will not, become, will, will not become fresh, for they will be left for salt. And by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They'll bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be food and be, leaves will be for the healing of the nations. Okay, now we can't skip there. We can't stop there. We're gonna to have to go to the book of Revelation for this one. Uh, and we'll jump to Revelation now. We'll go back to Ezekiel for one more thing here in just a second. But Revelation chapter 22 Revelation chapter 22, and you're going to see this exactly being described by John, of chapter 21, 21 verse 9. 
one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And they carried me away, verse 10, in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Remember, Ezekiel was taken to a high mountain in Ezekiel chapter 40. And, and he, I saw Jerusalem, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down to heaven from God. Remember, Ezekiel is told on, the, on a mountain he's going to see the, a great city. But neither one of them see a city. They both go on to describe a temple. The dimensions of this new Jerusalem are, are a perfect cube, the same width, height, and length, which is actually the holy of holies in the, the Jerusalem temple. And then we'll skip on down to, to Revelation 22, verse 1. He showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal coming from the throne of God. That's exactly where Ezekiel's river comes from, right? From the sanctuary. Uh, and, and, and of the lamb. So it's, it's no longer God's throne now. It's God's throne and the lamb's throne, which, excuse me, which goes back to Revelation chapter four, chapter three, four, and five. In verse two, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, on either side of the river were many trees. John only mentions one tree. And, and note this one tree is on both sides of the river. But it, it's one tree. And of course, the reason why it's on both sides of the river is because he's quoting Ezekiel. But Ezekiel has many trees. And so John leaves the fact that it's on both sides of the river, even though he has only, has only one tree. He's like, because you guys know what I mean. Don't. Don't try to literalize this and go, hey, how does that going to work? That's not the point, right? The point is the river, by the way, which comes from the throne of God. Anybody know what the river that comes from the throne of God represents? And if you give the wrong answer, I'll delete it from the podcast. So don't worry. <laughs> does it go back to the living water? Uh, yes. Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit, right? If you would have asked me, I would have given you living water and you would never thirst again. That's John 4. But in John 7, he said, as John tells us, by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom he had not yet given. And so you see a trinity here, the throne of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit proceeding from the throne. And that's why the creeds, the creeds say, and of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And by the way, the Father and the Son is a big debate between the Orthodox and the Catholics and the Protestants. It doesn't matter. The reason why the creed says that is because the creed is referring to Revelation 22. It's the Father and the Son's throne, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father's throne, or from the throne of the Father uh, and of the Son. All right, verse 3, uh, or middle of verse 2. Uh, the tree of life is on both sides, and it has 12 kinds of fruit. It yields its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There should no longer be any night. They don't have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, in light of the fact, and I know I haven't substantiated this uh, tonight, in light of the fact that Ezekiel is so commonly referred to, th chapters 37 through 48, from Revelation 17 onward, and maybe I can show you one verse right now to, to kind of support that also, there's no question that John's clearly referring to the temple of Ezekiel. The notion that Ezekiel's temple is like this last time's temple, and as soon as it gets built, we know that Jesus is going to be soon and the Antichrist is coming, doesn't make any sense. A, you can't build this temple because we don't actually know all of its dimensions. B, this temple has a sacrificial system that we know is fulfilled in Jesus. C, the temple is clearly being fulfilled by Jesus and then by, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And D, the climax of this temple is in the new Jerusalem. 
this is not a temple that's going to be built in the in a in a modern human sense of the of the city of Jerusalem. This is the glorified resurrected Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven to the earth. That's its ultimate fulfillment. And that's the climax of its fulfillment. Though I think we would say the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts today is the beginning of its fulfillment. And it continues to be fulfilled in our hearts and lives today. That's why Paul can quote it. And we can reference that later. But ultimately, its fulfillment is in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and finish this next time and kind of leave us hanging there. And we're going to look more so into the New, in the, into the new Testament. We'll look at the Gospel of John. We'll look a little bit more in the book of Revelation, maybe 20 or more minutes of, of this. But we're going to go ahead and end this tonight. Thank you for being with us. And I hope you'll stay tuned. To the Truth Thank podcast. you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.